Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Andrew F. Jones, who's professor in Chinese at the University of California, Berkeley, and he'll be talking about his new book, Circuit Listening, Chinese Popular Music in the Global 1960s, which was published last year, 2020, by University of Minnesota Press. Music from East Asia is today arguably a bigger part of the global soundscape than ever, and those who have suddenly found Sai, Zhao Fangjing, or BTS bursting into their sonic experiences might think of this trend as something completely new. However, as Andrew Jones shows in Circuit Listening, popular music from East Asia, and in this book it's a variety of Chinese languages and musical styles that are focused on, has been moving around for a long time, and perhaps never more importantly than during that most epochal of musical decades, the 1960s. Jones's book pays close attention to the questions of genre, periodization, and style, which emerge from considering the astonishing range of popular music production in the geopolitically divided spaces of Taiwan, China, and Hong Kong at this time. But the book is about a lot more than particular performers or songs. In order to understand the diffusion of different musical trends in these places and the connections and disjunctures between them, the book argues that we must study the circuits, geographical, cultural, and electronic, around which music moves. From recording and broadcasting of sound enabled by transistors and vinyl presses, to networks of record smugglers, socialist propaganda speakers, and diasporic Chinese businesses in Southeast Asia, Jones tunes in to these technological, economic, social, and geopolitical currents which propelled Sinophone popular music around East Asia and beyond. As a result, the book offers not only a rich compendium of research into megastars such as Grace Chan and Teresa Teng, and lesser-known genres of Taiwanese musical theatre and folk, but also a whole framework for understanding better the shifts in globalization and communication, which make it possible today, for example, for Ed Sheeran to have apparently written a song for the new BTS album. But the author is here to tell us a lot more about all of this, although maybe not BTS specifically. Uh, But uh, I'll say then, Andrew Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, likewise, it's a great pleasure to talk to you uh, on a topic which, you know, I have, uh, yeah, I would say uh, considerable amateur interest in. Um, but before we dive into the kind of themes of the book and so on, um, perhaps I could begin by asking you how you got here. You've uh, worked very extensively on uh, Chinese music at large. Um, so how did this particular project grow out of that long experience? Well, strangely enough, I, I was... Uh, I was never trained in, in musicology or ethnomusicology. Instead, I did my doctorate in Chinese literature, uh, focusing on modern Chinese literature. But um, I've always been really fascinated by sound and especially recorded music as a kind of portal into understanding uh, history, cultural history, linguistics, um, a whole panoply of, of different issues. Um, so over my career, I've ended up doing quite a lot of work on Chinese popular music, starting from the sort of emergence of rock music in the 1980s in mainland China, mm-hmm. um, 
to the origins of um, recorded music and popular music in Shanghai in the 1920s in the so-called Chinese jazz age. And then finally, this book, um, which in a way sort of sits in between those two earlier books, Like a Knife, which was about the 1980s, and um, Yellow Music, about the 1920s and 30s. This is sort of a mid-century book that um, maybe squares a circle um, Mm. and takes on the task of completing a a trilogy of of, of books about um, modern Chinese music in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, I guess, I mean, and it also does something, uh, I don't know, not to... Um, reduce the, uh, the the projects that you mentioned, the other two books, but it does something in some ways a good deal more complicated because perhaps this region on which you're focusing is so much more evenly riven by uh, sort of divides and, and influences and moving in less clear directions perhaps than those first two books. Would, would you say that's the case, that this is a more challenging project than those, or is that too simplistic? Um <clears throat> I, I think that makes sense. Um, in 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 one way, or I should say, in two ways, uh, this book came out of it's a sort of amalgamation of two book projects I had in mind earlier. Um, the first one was to write something not about yellow music, but about red music. That is the revolutionary music of of Mao's China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that in mind, but at the same time. Um, I'm a fairly, uh, you know, wide or, I don't know, promiscuous music listener. I'm fascinated by the music of the 1960s globally. Um, And I started to notice that really across the world, um, in places like Brazil or Jamaica or Nigeria or, uh, you know, Cambodia, there's this kind of upsurge of uh, local folk musics being kind of cross-hybridized with rock and roll or soul or globally circulating new popular musics of that era. And, you know, at first I was, I was really interested in this sort of cross-pollination between um, music from the countryside and these new urban electrified musics in the 1960s. Um, and it starts with all sorts of folk revivals in many different countries, not just the UK and the US, um, and winds up kind of producing this efflorescence, efflorescence of amazing new genres in the period, you know, so not only folk rock, again, in the UK or in the United States with Bob Dylan um, and et cetera, but also in Russia and, and or things like High Life in Nigeria, mm-hmm. uh, Ska, Rocksteady and Reggae in Jamaica, um, Fojo or Tropicalia in Brazil. So in, in one way, I wanted to write this book to kind of grapple with the larger question of um, 1960s global pop music and what happened to kind of facilitate this flowering of, um, to my mind and to my ears, really beautiful and, and fascinating um, sonic textures and, and forms of musical expression worldwide. So mm. I suppose I'm looking at the Chinese speaking world also as a portal or a, a you know a core sample of a larger global phenomena mm. in that period. Well, you definitely weave through uh, or weave together these different uh, these different currents, and and I think yeah, maybe those uh, original uh, two book ideas or or different kind of projects uh, very are very uh, artistically here and very kind of convincingly um, into a into a whole. Whilst also not, you know, I think um, it's always a bit it's almost a bit unsatisfying when books are too neatly sealed up and and kind of hard to get in. And there are plenty of uh, you know uh, things to explore here, which maybe 
continue to ask questions about to what extent we can speak about the 1960s as this sort of coherent uh, period and so on. But um, we'll jump into those questions, I think, uh, as we go. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll start. I mean, you, you kind of take us into that moment. I think, uh, you know, if someone were to say, oh, uh, you know, what, what there was some important global music from the 1960s, it's a counterintuitive entry point to take uh, this uh, Maoist era song, The East is Red, as as the entry point to that. But uh, that's where the introduction uh, begins here. Um, so you, you, you kind of line up uh, the sort of discussion of this song, The East is Red, by discussing its broadcast from a, from China's first uh, satellite, um, mm-hmm. and uh, then draw us towards a comparison of this song with uh, the Beatles, All You Need Is Love. <laughs> so could you tell us perhaps why that See, sort of what that captures about uh, about where this project went. Uh, as you say, you've given us a bit of background as to how it kind of came together. But um, what 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 does the East is Red do for us as a an entry point here? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that. Um, I I only kind of came up with that uh, song and that satellite broadcast as an entry point um, as I was finishing up the book and and writing the introduction, which you know comes last <laughs> as mm-hmm. we're trying to get a handle on on um, the entirety of, of the book and the story it's telling. Um, one of the starting points of the book is whether you can look at a historical era like the 1960s and identify anything coherent that, that brings it all together, right? Um, and that's by no means an obvious um, yes. Uh, in fact, what we see in the 60s is a very fragmented world that's characterized by the Cold War, whether it's the Iron Curtain in Europe or the Bamboo Curtain in in, in East Asia, by national division, um, by the Vietnam War, by all kinds of conflicts. So is there any way that we could say that there's a coherent 1960s sound? And I think the, the gambit or the wager that the book takes is that we could look at underlying technologies as a common denominator um, mm-hmm. and an underlying kind of globalization of communication technologies. So the satellite example tries to work with that a little bit. Um, Of course, conventionally speaking, nothing could be more different ideologically, musically, formally, aesthetically than the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, and a song like The East Is Red, which was kind of anthemic, massive folk song made into a Maoist anthem that kind of dominated the soundscape of Maoist China at that time. So I just start off by pointing out that actually both of these songs are characterized, yes, of course, by how they sound and what they do politically, but even more so that they're both um, created really uh, for the widest possible dissemination. And they were kind of inconceivable as they were heard and as they were produced without the technologies that supported them. So in China, that would be a massive loudspeaker network that kind of sounded out uh, the, the the passions and the propaganda of the Maoist regime in the mm-hmm. 1960s, um, even to the point of being amplified into outer space when China launches in 1970 uh, the Dongfanghong uh, satellite into space. And it broadcast back to Earth that melody. Da, 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 da. Well, I won't <laughs> replicate the entire song, um, but it's basically a, a diode transistor playing that little melody back to Earth and I guess out into the cosmos as a clarion call for international or I guess outer national revolution as well. Um, mm. 
But interestingly enough, the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, which also has its own global ambitions or global pretensions, um, was written and performed for the first global uh, satellite television television broadcast in 1967. Um, so there's an odd parallelism between the two songs, despite their manifest differences. Um, and I think that theme plays out throughout the book, that uh, uh, we may have manifestly different pop music cultures in, in Taiwan or in Hong Kong or in mainland China, but in fact, they're all supported by the same revolutionary new technology, which is the transistor circuit. Um, And they play out in different ways, but um, the reach of the music, um, the way the music sounds, uh, the way it's reproduced, the way that people are able to listen to it are all determined in part um, by that underlying technology. Although the application of the technology does differ according to different political conditions or political circuits, as I use as, you know, using the phraseology from the book, Mm. as well as linguistic conditions and um, ideological mm, imperatives of the period. Right, right. And yeah, as you say, that that circuit kind of uh, works uh, analogously on a couple of different levels, which uh, we'll come on to presently, I think. Um, But I guess before that, you've already alluded to these kind of different uh, geopolitical spaces. um, And I think Another thing that we ask or we might ask about the 1960s as a coherent period globally is is uh, centered on the idea of revolution, for example, right? The, the kind of, of course, the Beatles represent a certain kind of revolution in, in, in one part of the world, uh, whilst, you know, Dong Fang Hong, uh, East is Red, is, is another sort of revolutionary, as you said, a sort of clarion call. Um, so uh, how much do you, did you, do you think uh, we can speak or... or to what extent is this sort of role of revolution, of social revolution, as well as technological revolution, and and the big social forces that drove, you know, everything from the 1960s experience of, uh, for example, uh, Britain or indeed London, because I don't think even all of Britain got it, uh, and North America, um, and also drove things like the Cultural Revolution. So, so where do where do kind of revolutionary events fit into your understanding of of this global 1960s or or indeed otherwise yeah it's it's hugely important and and um fascinating for when it does take place as in the cultural revolution in china and also where in a decade that's characterized by revolution where it really doesn't seem to be taking place as in taiwan where you have a pretty firmly counter revolutionary, if I can put it that way, or authoritarian anti-communist regime under Chiang Kai-shek. Um, so there are a number of different kinds of revolutions that I was interested in here. And one of them is actually a little bit more perhaps economically or structurally fundamental than the outward trappings of, say, a socialist revolution, and that's the Green Revolution. Um, and I'm inspired I was inspired in this in part by um, Frederick Jameson's analysis of the 1960s called Periodizing the 1960s, where he says that, um, among other things, the 60s is characterized by a deepening of decolonization worldwide. But one of the things that's happening um, on the ground, and especially in rural areas, is green revolution, whereby new technologies, new fertilizers, new strains of um, rice cultivars are really kind of, well, here's the word again, revolutionizing 
agricultural production, and in many cases, rendering uh, labor and rural laborers uh, extraneous. And so what you see all over the world in the 1960s is a kind of convulsive growth of big cities, cities mm-hmm. like Sao Paulo or Kingston or uh, uh, Taipei, um, and a massive new lurch forward in terms of industrialization. So one of the premises of the book was that I wanted to look at the 1960s, not only from the metropolitan perspective of, of a London or a San Francisco Bay Area or Paris, but from the peripheries of um, southern Taiwan or what's happening in the countryside in in China. And what we see there is um, actually in in most areas outside of mainland China, you see urbanization and a new kind of traffic that's also facilitated by portable transistor radios and um, vinyl records between rural music and urban music, um, especially as rural migrants pour into cities like Taipei. So that's one revolution that I think is really important for this period. Another one is the transistor revolution. That means that um, places that still don't have electrical mains now have access to media, to mm-hmm. you know transistor radios and to record players because transistors are light enough and cheap enough and um, <clears throat> demand... Uh, less electricity than tube electronics, which means that you can have um, um, battery-powered radios and and battery-powered wired radio networks in the case of China. So that's another kind of revolution that enables new sounds to circulate much more rapidly from the countryside to the city and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, yeah, there's there's, um, the dominant fact of the socialist revolution or the ongoing Maoist revolution in China that really deeply shapes um, the aesthetics of music in that period and daily life in that period and even the media system in that period, which is, um, again, characterized by a centralized system that then kind of, uh, in a capillary fashion, moves out across the countryside through wired broadcasting networks that bring the voice of uh, the party to even the remote hinterlands. So that's one kind of revolution. And then in Taiwan, as I mentioned, there's also a kind of anti-communist regime that's involved in really on the front lines of the Cold War. So yeah, all of those revolutions are are present and I hope at least partly accounted for in the book. Another interesting notion that I play around with, especially in the chapter about Maoist songs, is the way that Maoist media also move not only within China, but into a global circuit of young people, for instance, uh, Maoist revolutionaries in Paris or in Berkeley, who kind of tune into Radio Peking or tune into Maoist quotation songs and other forms of Maoist media. Mm. Um, So that particular circuit is, you know, well, largely uh, based in or produced in a sort of closed media space of the People's Republic of China, there are ways in which it is also globalized through kind of media circuits that move across, um, move laterally across the world. Mm. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot you say that's uh, very fascinating about how we might understand uh, some of these, yeah, pithy, uh, very catchy, but also, yeah, sort of, uh, I don't know, haunting uh, kind of rhythms or, or songs um, 
from the Maoist period, how we think of those as pop or how we might think of those as pop. It's a, the, the, there are some very interesting things you say about that that uh, I hope we'll come on to. Um, there's also uh, you know, a significant part of the book dedicated specifically to uh, Taiwan, which you've already raised, uh, and, and you know, I think uh, as, a, as a place that sits in opposition to, to that Maoist kind of uh, paradigm. Also uh, an awful lot to, to say about this broader picture. But you begin uh, in Chapter 1 with... Uh, somewhere that isn't either of those places, I guess, uh, or somewhere that sits under that uh, still colonial uh, kind of um, uh, colonial domination controlled by uh, Britain, namely Hong Kong. So um, how does this location uh, tell us something about this idea, which you've already alluded to, uh, circuits, circulation of of, of musical styles and genres? Um, And your focus here is on the personage of Grace Chan uh, in particular, um, so what, why, is, uh, why is she significant and, and how does this help us understand this uh, notion of circuits, which, uh, yeah, you've already brought up? Right. So I think the, um, the genesis of that particular notion about circuit listening actually arose out of my grappling with Grace Chen's music. And I mean, one thing I can say about the book in general is each of the chapters really started with my encounter with an LP record or vinyl record. Um, Mm. So in this case, I had found uh, a Capitol Records release of Grace Chang's music that was, um, you know, put out in the United States as part of a kind of world music before we had the phrase world music series that Capitol Music was doing. Um, Mm. Capitol Records, coincidentally, but I think significantly, was also the the company in the U.S. that promoted the Beatles or, you know, created the Beatles boom in the U.S. Um, so they did a Grace Chang record. I should, um, I should ask, do you, uh, yeah. the, the, the cover of the book, actually, very beautiful and striking, has these uh, record covers on it. Are these are these from your personal connect collection or are these are these other covers that uh, that feature on the, on the book itself? Um, most of them are from a pers- personal collection, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very, very striking. Right, and, and some of the... Um, colored plates in the center of the book are also, yeah, personal collection or records that were particularly significant in, um, you know, surveying the musical terrain of the period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So Grace Chang's really interesting. She kind of is a remnant in some sense or a um, inheritor of the Shanghai um, modern songs or should I true tradition of, uh, you know, uh, of modern pop music from the 20s, 30s and 40s. And then she was born in that region, um, I, I believe in Nanjing, and then emigrated to Hong Kong after the, um, or maybe just before the communist revolution in 49. So she carried on the torch of an earlier tradition of Shanghai popular music. But when you listen to that record, the Capitol Music, uh, Capitol Records, um, uh, um, Hong Kong's Grace Chen record, I found it really interesting because the traces of that earlier idiom of kind of jazz-inflected Chinese Mandarin pop songs from the 30s and 40s. But also, very conspicuously, there's mambo music, and Grace Chang kind of made a name for herself as the mambo girl in Hong Kong cinema. Um, there were calypso songs uh, and, and various other sorts of you know, Hollywood-inflected a show tune style kind of music. And and I was thinking Hong Kong's Grace Chang, but musically, this is a real, <laughs> uh, you know, strange mix of, of, of styles and genres. Um, and I was especially mm-hmm. struck by 
the presence of mambo and calypso. So how is it that Afro-Caribbean music becomes so important to Hong Kong's Grace Chang? So the idea I hit upon is to kind of try to map that record um, and to realize that Grace Chang couldn't really be captured by or encapsulated by Hong Kong itself. Or to put it in the obverse way, maybe Hong Kong itself is a space of movement or circulation or a node of circulation between really radically far-flung musical styles and ideologies, right? So if this star who represents Hong Kong is also the Mambo girl, the Calypso girl, um, also an avatar of Shanghai popular music, which itself was influenced by um, Hawaiian music and jazz, as well as local Chinese folk tunes, then how do we kind of, you know, understand her as representing a singular place? Mm. Uh, we can't really. She represents a network or a node of a network of global musical circulations. So that's kind of the one, one of the uh, directions or trajectories that I was launched on by, by Grace Chang and, and her wonderful her wonderful singing voice, as well as her role in um, Hong Kong cinema, and especially Hong Kong musical cinema at that time, which had its own network of distribution across Southeast Asia and the Chinese diaspora. Mm. And she sings in Mandarin as well, which uh, you, you notice significant. Um, what what is sort of important about that in the you know in the Hong Kong context, uh, and and then in that sort of uh, broader world within which her productions circulated? Right. So since the nineteen twenties um, and thirties, um, Hong Kong, of course, had its own Cantonese language um, film industry and pop music industry. But after the revolution and the kind of widespread immigration of um, capital expertise and media companies from Shanghai to Hong Kong in the 1950s, the kind of Mandarin film industry and a Mandarin um, pop music industry springs up and becomes really dominant um, in Hong Kong space and also uses that mm, vision of a, a national language and a coherent national Chinese identity to project outwards to the Chinese diaspora as well. So the, the height of that is, is companies like MPNGI, which was a Singapore-based um, um, kind of movie-making conglomerate, as well as the Shaw Brothers, um, of, which is, of course, a very famous uh, um, um, film studio on the kind of Hollywood model that flourished in Hong Kong in the 60s. And, and both of them relied on Mandarin as a kind of lingua franca. And I think actually probably a lot of the executives and filmmakers and creatives involved in that industry were very much shaped by a notion of uh, projecting a, a unified Chinese national language and identity out to the world, um, even out into a space that was still and remains, of course, now fractured by linguistic difference, even in the so-called Sinophone world, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Mandarin at that moment did become a very powerful passport to move across national borders or to create a unifying voice across a fractured geopolitical um, landscape. Mm. Right? And I think Grace Chang was very much part of that and, and, and relied on that for her musical identity. Right, and I think yeah, you convey very well that sort of um, almost paradoxical relationship between that uh, effort to, to to unify, to kind of forge some sort of uh, coherent uh, cultural um, 
you know, if not a political space, uh, whilst also, you know, with using a, a product or, or uh, by means of an extremely heterogeneous uh, uh, musical form or a selection of musical forms, as well as, uh, you know, um, cinematic uh, output and stuff, which, which I should say, you know, you play extremely close attention to uh, in, in the book itself. So the way that you marry together this uh, detailed sort of textual uh, attention to to the actual music, the listening. You you you, you talk a lot about uh, your work as an act of listening. I think that that mm. certainly holds up as something which uh, is very close to the ground and yet also yeah attuned. If that's not too weak a pun uh, to the broader currents of, of circulation and geopolitics. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, in in the chapter on Grace Chang, I talk a lot about um, a film called Air Hostess. Kong Zhong from 1959, which is kind of a, a vehicle, as it were, a, a, an aviation vehicle for, for Grace Chang's own popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also traces very closely the network, the business network or the business infrastructure for both the um, MPNGI, the film company that made the film, as well as Pathé Records. It was by then based in Hong Kong that was projecting the music for the film out to its markets and they visit precisely the places that are markets <laughs> for mm. the film and for Grace Chang's music, which would be, you know, Bangkok, Singapore, Taiwan. Um, so this air hostess that is played by Grace Chang visits and kind of replicates and reproduces and promotes her own fame throughout the film. Mm. And the songs mm. themselves, well, there's, again, Calypso and Mambo and um, a variety of different styles, but they are all sort of assimilated to this task of... Uh, projecting a project, a product, as well as, a, a, I think, a project of um, of an ideology of free China, mm-hmm. as opposed to red China. Uh, free China is a space of commerce and um, and of uh, capitalism. Yeah. Right, which suits that, I guess, Southeast Asian maritime world uh, right. quite well, too. Um, but, but from there, you move on to uh, to red China, as, as uh, we like to call it, uh, and and more red music, um, if you like. Um, the air, the, the kind of, of course, the the, the space from which, um, uh, or yeah, from which Grace Chung left to to go to Hong Kong, um, and you take us, you know, into what at least, as you say, as we've already mentioned briefly, seems like an extremely different kind of uh, cultural and 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 of course social space. Um, so could you talk about the particular songs that you chose to focus on here, these quotation songs, these these songs that lift directly from the the, the little red book and, and Mao's kind of quotations, and why it is that those are helpful in understanding this alternative circuit, I suppose, uh, that existed in the mainland during this period? Yeah, so this was also a case where um, finding a used record in a record shop here in Berkeley kind of <laughs> launched, launched a chapter. Um, I came across a 10-inch vinyl record of um, Chairman Mao quotation songs. Um, of course, I was aware of Mao's music and of the Red Song tradition. Um, that seems that. like a very it seems like a very Berkeley record shop find. I don't know where <laughs> where else you would come across that in a in a used uh, a used record store. Yeah, Berkeley is actually a very good place for crate digging because of that. Um, there were a lot of. Uh, radicals and, and student radicals here in the 60s. So those records are pretty easy to find here, as well as record pirate records that circulated from Taiwan and were bought by U.S. Um, GIs, mm. um, military men uh, in Taiwan who brought them back here because this was a port of 
embarkation and debarkation for for soldiers in Vietnam. Um, so yeah, a lot of the kind of material base for the book came from uh, record stores here. So a shout out to Amoeba, Amoeba Records on Telegraph Avenue that really helped the project along. <laughs> um, so awesome. that particular record, the quotation songs, just I, part of me was appalled by it um, because the songs are, are are really shrill and really loud and really deeply kind of insanely repetitive. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to my ear, they were very grating. Um, and yet after one listen, I was hooked. They, they're, they're unbelievably effective earworms. You just cannot get them out of your head, right? And and after listening for a while, one, I started to ask myself, why do these records sound this way? Like, why are they so um, canted up towards the mid-range and upper mid-range? Why are they so squeechy? Why is there no bass? <laughs> um, but also, by the same token, why are they so formally brilliant as pop songs? Like, I'd never heard songs that could stick so well in my head. Um, and of course, part of the answer is that their songs reduced to the sort of degree zero of songiness. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, they are all chorus and, and, and nothing else. Um, you'll take a quotation from The Little Red Book and repeat it ad infinitum for about a minute and a half, um, wedded to a pretty catchy little melody, and that's it then it's over <laughs> and then it repeats mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, rinse and repeat um, and replay. Uh, so yeah, I started to kind of do some deeper into research into how these songs came about. Um, and they were indeed part of a political campaign to promote the little red book that had been begun by Lin Biao, um, Chairman Mao's right hand man. And at the time, the head of the PLA uh, to kind of set the quotations in the Little Red Book are the quotations from Chairman Mao to music methodically from number one, the first quotation, all the way through. Um, But one thing that happened is that these songs really started to catch on, especially among Red Guards, and they became popular as songs to perform and re-perform with groups of friends, either, you know, with accordion uh, accompaniment or... um, or just simply sung chorally. And between 1966 and 1969, they were really quite ubiquitous across the Chinese soundscape, um, in part because they're so catchy, but of course also they express the tenor and something of the political uh, uh, sense of emergency and of, of, of um, passion that, that were prevalent in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so it was fascinating and interesting to also get a handle on why they sounded the way they did in recorded versions. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were being engineered to sound good or to travel well over the kind of outdoor, very somewhat rudimentary loudspeaker network that was part of the Chinese mediascape at that time. Um, So those speakers really couldn't accommodate bass at all. Um, They're quite loud uh they're engineered to uh so so that the sound could travel well and basically that tinny or high-pitched um um often kind of overdriven grainy quality of the sound actually is a kind of product of or an artifact of the media system through which it was disseminated and broadcast uh Mm -hmm. so yeah that that's kind of an example i suppose of 
um, using listening or close listening as a way to grapple with how how the media system was set up or what the technological basis of the media system was. Mm, mm. Because those things leave their traces on the music itself. Absolutely, yeah. So we've got, there's a kind of social dimension there, uh, which weds the presence of a certain kind of music to a certain kind of, I guess, countercultural or revolutionary uh, movements. You know, if we're looking for a kind of parallels there with global 1960s phenomena, I suppose that that marriage of uh, these little ditties or tunes with Red Guard activity is one area. But exactly as you say, another is this exactly this technological kind of uh, aspect to why, why it is that music ends up sounding like it does. Um, and so one of the sort of, I guess, purposes of this or one of the kind of uh, extraordinary achievements in a way which I think mirrors a, a sort of Chinese Communist Party achievement uh, was reaching, you know, the Chinese peasantry uh, probably, you know, more deeply, more extensively than any government ever in history of, of China had. Um, and by, you know, I guess, wiring up uh, village loudspeakers, they, there was a kind of level of penetration there that was uh, quite uh, extraordinary. Um, but you've already mentioned that this was a kind of two-way relationship in some respects between uh, you know the countryside uh, in this broader frame and uh, and and, and the, the urban the urbanizing spaces. So where did the tunes? I mean, you mentioned in the in the introduction about Dong Fang Hong that the original tune for that East is Red song is a, ba- a shambei, right? The kind of up on the North China Plain, a, a kind of folk song. So where were the actual tunes for these quotation songs sourced from? Do, do you have much a sense of that? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Um, many of them were composed by um, sort of party party musicians or people in the kind of upper echelons of the the music musical enterprise of, of, of the communist um, regime, but as you just brought up and implied, um, their basis was often in folk music. Um, so Dong Fang Hong quite famously was a sort of the product of a long evolution and long um, um, kind of upgrading or cultivation of a Shanbei folk song. And that's also the case with a lot of the quotation songs that they, as it were, quoted from earlier folk melodies Um cut them down to size, made them intensely uh, repetitive, and then married them to Chairman Mao's own words. Um, occasionally, there were funny and interesting emendations. Apparently, uh, the composers who were involved were enjoined, for instance, to always use high pitches for certain um, certain keywords like Communist Party. Um, so that changed the melody sometimes. And often they tried to adapt the melodies to the prosody of um, Chairman Mao's, Mao's own words. So for instance, if the quotation used chiasmus, a kind of you know um, rhetorical reversal, mm. then the melody itself would mirror that shape um, mm. in terms of its pitch distribution. <laughs> it's, it's very fun, actually. It's amazing, yeah. yeah it's, it's really interesting to look at the songs themselves and look at the, um, the kind of uh, uh, notation and how the pitches are distributed. Um, but yeah, a lot of the material is based on folk music. And later on in 1969, when Jiang Qing, Chairman Mao's wife, sort of gained the upper hand along with the Gang of Four as part of the Gang of Four, um, she eventually became disillusioned with this form of music because she felt it was too kinetic 
Um, that is, it, it promoted dancing, and dancing for her was tantamount to the kind of swing dancing she would have known in the 1930s back in Shanghai. Um, and she was also bothered that the music was a little bit too folksy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, she, as is well known, had interests in other forms, such as ballet. Right. So in 1969, this particular genre of quotation songs was proscribed and banned um, and remains so for the rest of the Cultural Revolution period. Mm. But I suppose, nevertheless, what that what it represents is still a pretty tight marriage of uh, kind of central priorities or, um, you know, urban elite production and uh, and. The, the the world of the of the peasantry the the kind of wider chinese countryside the the formalism of that relationship is still quite tight i think relative to the dynamics you describe in the following three chapters which um, take us to taiwan where i guess at this time at least um a different kind of uh, chaos and flux is afoot uh with regard to the sort of broader taiwan music scene so, and, and I should say as well, I sense, you know, actually for these chapters, a lot of uh, affection and deep involvement with Taiwan, uh, which uh, I think uh, I gather goes goes back a, a fair way with you, with with the personal relationships with the various um, musical figures uh, there too. So uh, that's also very um, kind of, uh, you know, a very convincing and, and powerful component of, the, of this section of the book. Um, but yes, you take us at first into this um, genre of Taiwanese musical cinema, um, and a particularly a musical called Goodbye Taipei, uh, starring an actor, Wen Xia. Um, could you tell us about this this musical and its action and its audience? And I guess, you know, relating it to these questions of, I guess, town and country or, uh, you know, globalization and, and the shifting kind of political currents too, um, what, that, what light that sheds on what was going on in Taiwan uh, sort of roughly at this period? Yeah, absolutely. So, it's true that I think in some ways the the heart of the book or the core of the book are a series of chapters on Taiwan music um, for a number of reasons, I think. One, uh, since the book is very deeply concerned with transistor technology, um, Taiwan's a great test case. It actually became one of the world's leading manufacturers of transistorized electronics um, in the late 1960s. Um, so both materially and in terms of its kind of musical culture, it reflects that the themes of the book well. It's also a place that went through, as we all know, a radical economic takeoff in the 60s. It was based on rural to urban migration and rapid industrialization. So all these convulsive changes um, are reflected in the music. And um, Wen Sha, um, who was one of the great stars of so-called um, Taiyu or Taiwanese um, musical cinema, as well as pop music, is a wonderful example of all of that. Um, he's from Tainan, southern Taiwan. Um, and his persona, at least, in his films was of a rural or southern Taiwanese um, wanderer, Liu Langhan, who, who you know tries to move from the countryside to the city and make it big in a place like Taipei. And a lot of the culture in Taiwanese, which was the local majority language, which was very actively suppressed and marginalized by the KMT or nationalist government um, in favor of Mandarin. Um, so this kind of marginalized majority culture that was represented by Wensha is very much uh, 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 kind of portrayed 
in this wonderful film, um, Zaijian Taipei, or Good- Goodbye Taipei from 1969, um, which features Wen Sha and his sidekick kind of walking down a, ro- a country road and walking right into Taipei and then having a series of kind of picaresque adventures. They're all accompanied by some of Wen Sha's originals as well as his, as, as his covers of um, then globally circulating pop music, both from Japan um, as well as from uh, the West. So you have like, you know, Blue Cheers, Psychedelia, or uh, covers of the Beatles, but also covers of mm, really interesting gender-bending um, Japanese pop songs from the period. And one thing that interests me about this whole milieu is that for the Taiwanese music and cinema of the period, which was really undercapitalized, these are black and white films, they often have a kind of slapstick, um, low-budget um, charm to them. Um, but their cultural reference points are very, very different, I think, from either the mainstream Mandarin culture that was circulating through the Chinese diaspora at this time, mm. or from, you know, of course, uh, mainland Chinese Maoist culture. And that point of reference was really strongly Japanese. Um, and of course, this is a remnant of uh, the suppressed but still really rather vital connection that Taiwan had to Japan after 50 years of colonialism. Um, so Wen Sha and a lot of his colleagues in the Taiwanese music scene, like Hong Yifeng, um, were known for um, taking Japanese melodies, pop melodies, and then adapting them with Taiwanese lyrics. Um, and this sort of music was often called or um, mixed blood music. Mm. Um, yeah, so in a way, I would say that Wen Sha in his case, you know, beyond the fact that the film is delightful and his music is wonderful, um, also helped to situate Taiwan in a very different kind of linguistic, ideological, and historical circuit. And that's part of what interested me here, um, that within the same historical period, um, even in a film that kind of quotes the Beatles or quotes Blue Tear or quotes Otis Redding, um, you still have a, an incredibly distinctive and quite disparate um, cultural formation that Mm-mm. emerges um, beautifully in the music. Yeah, and you have some really uh, touching reflections on that um, by uh, a figure that I think we'll come back to in a second, um, Xu Changhui, uh, kind of prominent um, I guess, a critic and scholar of Chinese music, if I've understood correctly, in the appendix to the book, uh, a sort of almost uh, psychogeographical or musical psycho- psychogeographical exploration of Taipei at this time, where he's walking around and hearing some of these, um, yeah, as you put it, these hunche, uh, these uh, sort of Taiwanese language, Japanese clones uh, or, or music uh, kind of borrowed from Japan as well as Japanese originals, as well as some of this sort of Beatles and other Western music. And I think he's, he's sort of uh, amusingly appalled by all of it um, in, in, the, in that appendix, uh, which you include. Um, but uh, absolutely, I, I think uh, you document very, um, uh, very well there, that kind of very different sort of milieu set, set of influences and, and things that feed into the Taiwanese music scene as embodied uh, by Wen Xia. Um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, on the on the kind of uh, broader scale, you've mentioned already there that, that the significance of Taiwan is this place where transistors is a, is a key industry and uh, where embeddedness in certain um, circulations, technological circulations is important. Um, you mentioned that, yeah, vinyl becomes a kind of key 
uh, I guess, <laughs> pirated vinyl becomes a, a key industry, if not, if not, I guess, promoted by the government. But it becomes something that is very significant to the to the to the way that music moves around this region at the time. So, could you say something a little bit about why it was that Taiwan became this center, this entrepot of records and and and, and pirate production of music? Yeah. So this in in. In some sense, I suppose in the book I framed this um, the pirate music industry or the vinyl industry in Taiwan as part of a, a military circuit. Um, and I think not only in my book, but in work by other scholars looking at, say, um, South Korea in particular, we see that um, the presence of U.S. military bases, especially in the 1960s, but really starting from the Korean War as well, um, became a driver of Mm, the importation and the sort of jumping or the leap of um, Anglo-American pop music into East Asian media circuits. Um, so one of the conduits for that was the U.S. Armed Forces Radio that brought the you know Billboard Top 40 Sounds of the U.S. into East Asian airspace. Um, but another really important driver that I have a chapter about was Pirate Records. And pirate records really, and also pirate books at the time in Taiwan were really driven by a huge declivity between, um, uh, you know, the poverty, the still pretty serious poverty of Taiwan and and the wealth of um, the United States. So if you wanted to, say, even buy a record by Beethoven, let alone the Beatles, it would cost anywhere from 10 to 50 times as much if you got the official copy um, Mm. imported from the U.S. So what sprung up in particular in response to the very large population of U.S. service people and administrators and military men in Taiwan was local pressings of, you know, imported records that were then sold around the military bases. Um, But what happens is that initial um, pirate industry selling to U.S. servicemen mostly, um, starts to scale up and starts to find an audience, especially among young people in a city like Taipei in the um, um, uh, around the Dongshan Road area where there were a lot of U.S. military installations, but also a lot of kind of hipster bars and um, cafes. It becomes a kind of um, a subculture whereby young people get turned on to what's called or um, hit music or hot music, however you want to translate it, through mm. these pirate records. Um and by the late 60s and early 70s, this was a pretty big industry. And it was, um, of course, flouting copyright conventions or tacitly allowed to do so. Um, but it started to also be an export industry, whereby Taiwan was exporting records to Hong Kong, throughout Southeast Asia. A lot of these records are coming back to the U.S., um, as I mentioned before, as servicemen mm. buy them there and then take them back. Um, you can still come across them a lot in the U.S. because there were so, you know, hundreds of thousands of records produced. Um, and I look at the industry in the chapter, and it has pretty interesting roots. Um, some of the expertise that went into making vinyl locally in Taiwan actually came from people who have been trained in mining and with making Bakelite out of mining tailings um, under Japanese colonialism, and then parlay that into this new kind of media industry Mm. um, in the 60s and 70s. And what's also quite fascinating about it is that I do a kind of case study of one company called um, Di Tangpian Gongsu, the first records, um, which was a kind of major pirating company 
And the money they made in pirating records in the 60s and 70s and then into the early 80s when the industry kind of tails off as copyrights are applied is then, I don't want to say laundered, but that's essentially what happens. Um, Money is then uh, reinvested in optical media and the same company that was a pirate record company in the 60s and 70s becomes the world's largest producer of um, CD-ROMs and CDs in the 1990s and early 2000s mm. before that industry well, as well um, goes goes, right. goes away because of the internet and digitalization. So yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, industrial story. Uh, but it's also really compelling, I think, cultural and musical story because pirate records especially enable the influx of music like rock and roll, but also things like Bob Dylan or Joan Baez um, Mm. into Taiwanese campus life Uh and are a direct generator of one of the major genres that emerges out of Taiwan in the 70s and 80s, which is campus folk. Now, campus folk also generates... uh, the emergence of a legitimate local pop music industry in Taiwan uh, that produces, you know, Su Rei and all, all the teaching uh, and all the kind of great pop rock singers who then take the mainland by storm um, once the kind of cassette industry gears up in the 1980s after reform and opening. So there's kind of a direct route between U.S. military bases, pirate records, the later sort of anti-colonial campus folk, and then finally um, the conquering of the mainland by Taiwanese pop music. Um, Mm. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why I had to focus a lot on Taiwan in this book, because Taiwan has had a hugely outsized um, role also in mainland musical history. And of course, uh, Teresa Tung or Deng Lijun is the great sort of avatar of of that history. Absolutely, yeah. And and I mean, in some ways, you know, it's uh, extraordinary to think of anything much surviving this uh, kind of on, onslaught of militarized and, and, and industrialized uh, sort of processes that, that unfold around this whole region over the period you've been talking about, you know, even stretching beyond the, beyond the 1960s. Um, you know, your, your uh, description of that, uh, of that Wen Sha uh, musical um, uh, film, Goodbye Taipei, is, is, is exactly a sort of monument to something which is going because that was the, his last Taiyu, uh, Taiwanese language film, um, and and equally as you said, that there's a kind of uh, huge complex of things that are driving these changes towards urbanization and towards, of course, the influxes, as you've said, of uh, global currents of, uh, I guess, Western pop music and and um, and and you know, then spawning folk and so on. Um, you do document a really fascinating and important case too, though, of of sort of indigenous folk revival in the in the persona of uh, Chanda, this. Uh, uh, folk musician who um, I, I think you suggest is sort of came to prominence as a result of the of a meeting with uh, Xu Changhui, uh, the, the person who wrote the uh, uh, or the the author of the appendix that you include. Um, perhaps we don't have time to delve into that too deeply, but I'd say just to reinforce what you've said about sort of the extraordinary um, kind of multiplicity of uh, influences on Taiwanese music, and then the outward sort of. Uh, profusion of it into Chinese language uh, pop space um, is is really reinforced still further by by talk by discussion of that as sort of you know um, native Taiwanese uh, musical tradition. Um, 
but we might move on then finally to, to a figure you've already alluded to here, Theresa Tang, uh, a figure perhaps best known. I, I don't know if this is true, but among uh, most of the stars that you or the, the, the personae that you focus on may be the most famous. I don't know. Um, what does her kind of emergence at exactly this period you've just mentioned there uh, when when the sort of airwaves are opened and and uh, Taiwanese music can sort of cross the straits and and land in what we've already suggested is a very different sort of musical technological and, and of course geopolitical realm what does what does that sort of process tell us about uh, about PRC and Taiwanese music and and this broader question of connections across this era right so so Teresa Tang or in Chinese Deng Dream um really is a pivotal figure and I think she is very much the best known or most iconic figure that the book um, tries to understand better, understand in a new light. And in some ways, her emergence in the late 1960s does have a, a dialectical and quite melancholy relationship with people like Wen Sha or Chen Da, the great uh, um, Taiwanese folk troubadour. Um, because as her star rises, it's rising through the kind of expansion of the television industry and of consumer electronics in Taiwan. And that rise of color TV and Mandarin language media really puts paid to and ends the career of um, Wen Sha in that period. So Taiyu um, cinema is basically destroyed by the rise of television in the early 70s. And a really distinctive local folk musician like Chen Da just doesn't really travel across the gating mechanism that's created by TV and modern media. But at the same time, you have a new ascendant um, Mandarin pop music that's really represented by Deng uh, Li and her Mandarin songs. Um, so in the context of Taiwan, she represents a new mobility and a new kind of Mandarin elite um, in the popular culture space. What's really distinctive about her story, of course, is she's also the figure who brings Mandarin pop music in the Shanghai tradition or the pre-revolutionary tradition back into mainland China. And as is well known, this happens really not only because of her personal magnetism or her uh, skills as a performer, um, but really because of a changing media landscape. So I analyze her and her music not so much in terms of her persona, but in terms of uh, her status as, as um, a, a domestic appliance. That is, once, once people get uh, personal domestic access to cassette radio players and, 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 and uh, in, in their homes, the entire status and situation of listening changes radically. And with that comes cassettes of her music coming from Hong Kong and Taiwan. Mm. And with that comes a new kind of attention to the voice and especially to her female voice and to a different kind of soundscape that wasn't really available um, in the era of communal loudspeaker listening that we alluded to earlier in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So she, as a kind of media effect, she really transforms listening and transforms the soundscape Mm. private soundscapes of uh, you know ordinary Chinese citizens starting in the 1970s, first through what's called Ting um, Di uh, or listening to enemy radio, and then through the kind of cassette revolution that brings a certain new agency of listening to um, mainland Chinese uh, music fans. Mm. And so, so the last chapter in 
the book kind of traces another interesting dialectic because Deng Lijun was from a military, a KMT military family, and she was often called upon uh, as a voice of um, Taiwan or Republic of China propaganda. In fact, um, on at least two occasions, she went to Jinmen, the island of Jinmen, and broadcast on these like high volume um, military loudspeaker installations across the straits to the Fujian coast. Um, but what I argue is that those kinds of military networks, fixed military networks, were really feeble compared to the more capillary, more thoroughgoing transformation of the media environment that was created by cassettes and cassette mm-hmm. players as they you know, become widespread and easily available in China. And it's really through that medium that her voice actually travels, not only across the six miles between Jinmen and the coast, uh, the Xiamen coast in Fujian, but deep, deep, deep into the Chinese countryside and, and, and you know, widely uh, disseminated through Chinese cities. And, and that really takes place in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then opens up, again, the mainland Chinese market to what were called in, in, in China, Gangtai Gochu, or, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan pop. Mm. And we might wonder, I suppose, whether the audiences were, the, were particularly attuned to the these particularities of voice that you mentioned by the fact that their sort of uh, previous to that, their listening experiences had been uh, also through, uh, you know, very kind of oral only or oral only um, medium, you know, this kind of authorless uh, broadcasting of, uh, of, of some of the red songs that you, or the, and the quotation songs that you mentioned, um, you mentioned that, you know, for her early sort of career in China, if you call it a career, but her appearance in China, was as a as a voice, not as a people didn't know what she looked like. They right. only heard heard but not seen. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. This really fascinates me that there was a kind of um spectral uh quality to her voice in China, especially at first, when people really would tune in surreptitiously to listen to her voice. Mm. And what we find in accounts of that early and intense close listening to her voice, you know, in private, in, you know, with the curtains drawn and, and um, often with the sound very low so that you had to kind of put your ear next to the radio or maybe use an earpiece to listen because it was still forbidden to do so. Um, we actually hear a really intense attention to timbre, um, to the tonal quality of her voice, and it stands in, in, in such uh, powerful contrast to the kinds of timbres and the kind of tonal qualities that were prevalent in revolutionary music. And I think that that that's part, an interesting part of the story is um, um, the way the situation of listening kind of uh, spurs people to close listening and mm. a very kind of emotionally effusive kind of listening um, mm. in that transition between media um, regimes. Right. And it's for that reason that I think uh, <laughs> for all that, people wouldn't necessarily want to be called a, a an appliance or an indeed an acoustic effect as you as you put it in the book i think it, it makes that uh, way of understanding the figure of Theresa Tang or Dong Lijun um very persuasive because of exactly the background you trace and i think adds to this uh, convincing portrayal of this era as one which uh, well wherein it is as important to consider the kind of the connections the coherence uh, as well as the as well as the disjunctures and uh, and uh, declivities, all of which you've documented extremely well here. Um, but Andrew, um, we've had a 
good chat here. And I have to say there's plenty more in the book that we haven't covered. So of course, I'd urge listeners to get out and, and get hold of a copy uh, in order to delve deeper into all of these topics. Um, but uh, before we close up completely, I'd, I'd ask you where your uh, kind of uh, ears or, or any other, I guess, uh, senses have taken you uh, and what your next projects have been after this book. Well, currently, it seems that I've stumbled into perhaps uh, writing a, a, a new book about Jamaican popular music that relies perhaps in part on the methodologies or the trains of thought that I developed in circuit listening. Um, so I've already written a couple essays about the development of reggae. Um, and part of the point of entry, which may interest listeners to this podcast, is um, the really quite remarkable role that Hakka Chinese migrants to Jamaica played in the production and even the aesthetic development of that um, you know, really powerful Afro-Jamaican musical form. So that's one project I'm working on musically. Mm. And beyond that, well, I just continue to um, write about modern Chinese literary topics and, and work on literary translations. Mm-hmm. Of some of my favorite uh, Chinese stylists. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, we'll look forward to to tuning in uh, indeed to those uh those other those other future projects um and and i think uh if, if there's one thing you've shown here it's that um it's hard to understand any of these uh musical sort of trajectories or, or histories in isolation so um certainly people i think should be interested in reaching out to jamaica and beyond um thank you very much andrew though uh, it's been wonderful talking to you today and i'm really grateful for you appearing on the show thank you so much it was a pleasure Listeners, thank you too, as ever, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.